Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place these, there in these days? He, Jesus, asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And as they came near to the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he was going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. Because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? In that same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been, he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. allow our imaginations to just inhabit this story Tim just read for a moment. So there's these two disciples, they're walking on the road to Emmaus, and a stranger appears. It's, it's Christ, but they are kept from recognizing him. And they're walking along with him, but they don't realize that it is him. And they're discussing all these things that have just happened, the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. They don't actually fully understand the resurrection yet, but they're, they're talking about these things and what the women have said, and they're trying to make sense of it with this stranger. And as they near their destination, the stranger intends to go on, but the disciples say, no, no, stay with us. Don't go on. It's late. Why don't you stay with us? And he stays with them, and he sits down at a table, and he takes bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, 
and he gives it to them. And at that moment, their eyes are opened. And they say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us when we were talking with him and walking with him on the road? The first thing that stands out to me in this incredible story of Jesus' resurrected self is how Jesus meets these two in their sadness. And he walks with them in their sadness. Jesus is curious about their story. The scripture said, he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. And Jesus stands with them there. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And Jesus asked them, what things? What things? It stands out to me that they stood still looking sad. They are sad. And in their sadness, Jesus stands next to them. I'm reading that novel right now. It's, it's called Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. I don't know if anyone's read it, but there is this scene. I just read that it just like took my breath away. It's a scene of two orphans, and these two orphan children are staying up late at night in the story, and they're swapping their sad stories with each other. And after a particularly like sad exchange of story between these two orphans, the one orphan who's narrating says, we just sat there together in the sadness. And he says, I will never forget that moment. It felt like we were not hungry. And when I read that and I was you know, meditating on this passage, I was thinking about Jesus with these two on the road, with them in their sadness. And I just felt this big pause in me, like, don't miss that that Jesus is with them in their sadness. That there is this mystery to when we share sadness and someone just stands there with us in it and doesn't try to flee from it and doesn't try to fix it. There's something that happens there. And it, it's like the feeling of not being hungry for a moment. It's like this mystery that somehow it gets lifted just a little. I mean, obviously trauma is traumatic, but you know what's fascinating is that researchers of trauma are discovering that what is needed for the healing of trauma is a compassionate witness. And that compassionate witness is actually what plays an instrumental part in the healing of trauma. It's not the sadness that kills us, right? It's, it's all of our work to avoid the sadness that does that. That we spend all this energy trying to avoid the sadness. And, and those orphans swapping those stories of their loss with one another... It, it was like the feeling of not being hungry. I mean, we'll tell our kids that which is shareable is bearable, right? It's kind of cliche, but, but there's something in it that's true. At Christmas time, we'll sing, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. 
I think of that when I think of these disciples on the road and their hearts are burning within them and, and they're admitting that they're sad and Jesus is walking with them in that reality. Jesus meets these disciples where they are, walks with them there, and when that union happens with him, when that communion happens with him, the scriptures describe it that their, that their hearts were burning within them. It's like that feeling of not being hungry. And I love these questions that Jesus is asking them along the road because the disciples are like, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard about everything that's been happening? And Jesus says, what things? What things? Obviously, he knows what things. It's about him. It's about what he just went through. But it's like he's saying to them, like, what things? Because in their telling the story, it's like, oh, that's the story that you're telling to yourself about these events. And Jesus cares about that. It's almost like you and I could imagine Christ walking beside us and whatever we're facing saying to us, like, what things? Like, saying to you, what story are you telling yourself about these things? Because that matters. That matters to Jesus. So he's like, you know, what things? What story am I telling myself right now? The story they were telling themselves is like summed up in this one line in scripture. They said, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That's the story that they were telling themselves. We had hoped. You can hear the pain in the words. We had hoped he was the one. It's almost like life is always just this half step away from disappointment. If you think about it like musically, if you have musically a C and an E and a G, you have a chord, and it's sunny and it's bright and life is good. But just a half note, right? You take the E and you go just a half a step to an E flat and now the chord is like, <laughs> it's like sad, melancholy. It's kind of broody. That's like life, right? It's like a half step away. They're like, we had hoped he was the one. It was like so close. These two people had set their hopes that this one was the one, the one who would redeem Israel. And you had to place yourself in their shoes like they're walking around and every road, every intersection is an indication that they are occupied, Roman occupied, that, that Rome was in charge. And they had hoped that he was the one to change that constant reminder at every intersection that they were crushed by this weight of this oppressive Rome. They had hoped that a descendant of David was going to be ruling in Jerusalem and that the nations were going to, you know, supposed to be coming to them and their identity as a people, the story they were telling themselves, their identity was totally invested in this idea that Jesus of Nazareth is going to be the one to bring about political freedom that he's going to be the leader who's going to do what they wanted him to do. We had hoped he was the one. That was the story they were telling. And I just think, like, how many times have you and I had our hopes tied to something, and we had hoped that that thing or that person was the one? Like, you're, 
get together with someone and you're like, they're like a dream boat until they're like the sinking Titanic ship and we had hoped that they were the one or any myriad of things. I mean, you're, you're trying to get into a university or you hope you get that promotion or you're, oh, once we get that property or once we connect with that, you know, influential person who opens that door and we had hoped that that thing or that person or that something was going to be the one. And the thing is, is either it doesn't happen and we had hoped it was the one and it doesn't happen. Or, sometimes even worse, it does happen. And we had hoped it was the one. And then we're still on the other side of that achievement or that thing. And it's like the restlessness is still there. And the discontentment is still there. And we had hoped that that scenario was the one. I think, I think we all can identify with that, that these two had hoped that this one was the one, and Jesus comes alongside. He listens to their story. He's curious about the story that they are telling to themselves, and then Jesus tells them a different story. Jesus's story to them could be summarized like this. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? It's a totally different story. They're telling a story about Jesus, and Jesus tells a different story, and it's amazing when you think about it. Like, in our world right now, all of the stories being told about Jesus, it's kind, I mean, it's kind of astonishing if you're paying attention. Like, if you were to go home today and consult the great theological commentary that we call Facebook, <laughs> you could witness this, right? Some people are like, oh, Jesus is super liberal and every secular agenda in there in the world is what Jesus is about and then you can go over here and somebody else is like Jesus is conservative and he loves America and guns and the status quo and then you know you go over here and there's somebody else who's like well Jesus is a prosperity guy and he actually wants you to have like a private jet and a super easy life and like all of these invented Jesuses. And these two on the road had invented a version of the Messiah who was like a military Messiah, who was going to come and bring about political freedom for Israel. These two on the road had invented a Jesus too. And in their story, the story they were telling themselves, this would be a Jesus who would have a throne with no suffering, who would have a crown without any cross, who would have a government and an army without any humiliation, would have all the power but would never experience any pain. He was the, their invented Jesus, their invented Messiah. And really, I think that the key to understanding this conversation we're witnessing in scripture is that up until this point, there was no rabbi, there was no rabbinic interpreter of scripture who looked at Genesis through Malachi and saw a suffering Messiah. I think the key to understanding this interchange in part is that up until that point, nobody saw a suffering Messiah. A throne? Yes. A military? Yes. Power? 
Yes. A king? Yes. A cross? A tomb? Death? No. No one was thinking this way. This was not the story they were telling. And Jesus comes along and he tells a different story. And it is the story of reality if the Spirit gives us eyes to see. When they hear it, this other story, when they hear it, they say later, we're not our hearts burning within us. Because Jesus tells them, this different story, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter this glory? Jesus is saying, like, the crown of thorns is the way to the throne. That the cross is the way to the crown. And none of them wanted that. Let's be honest, none of us want that. Few of us believe that to be true, and yet that's the key. Like, that is the story of reality that Jesus is telling here. They didn't want it. We often don't want it. And on the road, suddenly, it's like they see it and their hearts burn within them. Their eyes are open to this, like, new reality, this, this other way of seeing. Oh, oh, the Messiah had to come and die and rise, and we're invited to come and die and rise with him. Like, what in the world does that mean? I mean, if you just think about this moment, this is one of the first, you know, encounters of the resurrected Lord Jesus. When you think about what Jesus had just been through in the week prior to this moment on the road to Emmaus, his friend Judas had betrayed him. Have you ever felt betrayed? Like, every time you sit down, you're like, oh yeah, there's a knife in my back, like for a very long time. Jesus had been betrayed. By, some, by a friend. He had been abandoned in his darkest hour, totally misunderstood, totally abandoned. I mean, his best friend Peter's like, I don't even know the man. Have you ever felt abandoned by people who you thought were family, thought were friends? And then he suffers. And, you know, the thing about the way in which he died was that Rome had been working to perfect this way of death for a very long time. They, they wanted it to be, you know, they didn't just want to, like, kill someone who didn't comply. Like, you're not on board with the way of Rome. We'll show you what's going to happen. We're not just going to, like, kill you. And we're not going to make you suffer so fast that you die quick. We're actually going to perfect this way in which we, we, ex- we bring you to the point of suffering and excruciating death without actually dying for as long as possible. And they... And they perfected that over time, and they called it the, the execution stake. There's actually a recorded time in Roman history where like 2,000 people were put on crosses. It was Rome's way of saying like, here's what happens if you don't comply. And this is the way Jesus suffers. And this is the way Jesus died. So in the week leading up to this moment on the road, I mean, he's betrayed. He's abandoned, he's misunderstood, he suffers, he dies. And it is so fascinating because when Jesus rises and we see these encounters of of people with him, these first encounters of his resurrected body, super curious. It very often involves food. Like 
apparently when you die and rise, you work up an appetite or something. Because he's like taking bread, and he's like, here, you want some bread? It's, it's just this curious, like, what is the story that the gospel writer Luke is telling here? Because here's the thing. Jesus has just gone through the worst thing possible. He's gone through the worst possible thing you can go through, and he's still here. And you know what that makes him? Unafraid. Fierce. Dangerous. Unstoppable. Because it's like, what can somebody do to him? Like if somebody is like, well, Jesus, don't do that. They might kill you. Ooh, right? I mean, he's, he's already been through that. Or if somebody's like, Jesus, you really shouldn't say that because people are going to misunderstand you. They're going to reject you. Jesus has, like, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Like, he's, he's already, this is the week prior, so he is unafraid. It's almost like, maybe like if you have a friend who has been in a car accident, but then they live. I doubt they come out of that saying, I just want to go make as much money as humanly possible. Right? People don't come out of a, a near-death experience saying like, I want to climb the corporate ladder of America now and accumulate as many material things as I possibly can. No, like when someone comes out of a car accident and they've lived, they're like, I'm alive. You're alive. We're alive. And, you know, you having not been through that, you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, we are. But they're like, no, I'm a, like, you know, or your friend who has cancer and then they come, you know, into remission and you live life differently. You have, a, you know, your life looks differently suddenly when you've been face-to-face with death. And I think, you know, this is the sad part of the fact that the church has often tried to reduce this story, the story of Jesus, to a story that says, like, believe in Jesus and you will get out of here one day when you die. That has never been the story. The story of the Bible has never been that Jesus died so, like, you can get beamed up someday and live. Like, the story from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's a story about this world. It begins in a garden in this world. Jesus comes to live in this world. Jesus dies in this world. He teaches us to pray on this earth as it is in heaven. At the end of the Bible in Revelation, there's a city, there's a garden in this world, when, even in Genesis, when God created this world, it's like he, he's, it is good, it is good, it is good. It's the poetic refrain of Genesis 1. It is good, it is good, it is good. And then when, when God creates human beings, the first man, the first woman, it is very good. In other words, like, our brokenness, it's not the truest, deepest, most important thing about us. The truest, most important, deepest thing about you is your belovedness, not your brokenness. You are very good in God's eyes. That is this story. And so then when we encounter the resurrected Jesus in the scriptures, it it often involves food. Like Jesus is showing up and he's interacting with the earthiness of this world, with the hunger of humanity. 
The story of Jesus has never been what the church often tries to make it, like just believe in Jesus so you can get out of here someday when you die. No, the story of Jesus has always been die with me now so that you can begin to live now. That the death and resurrection pattern of living begins now, starts now with God on this good earth that God loves, which means... Like, you play that out, right? Art matters. Design matters. The way in which cities are built and construction, it matters. Justice matters. The earth matters. Jesus is like, hey, in his resurrected body, you want some bread? Because you're human and you're hungry. My problem, though, (laughs) is often I am just like white-knuckling my way through life. I am unwilling to die to the things I am holding. And that's the invitation. I'm gripping so tightly. I'm holding on to things. Maybe, maybe you relate with this. Like, Jesus is like, you want some bread. And I have in my hand, like, gripping tightly fear and anxiety. Like, but what if something bad happens? What if something bad happens to me? What if what if something bad happens to the people that I love? And I'm just like, like this. I'm just like holding it so tight. I have this like white knuckle grip on life or, you know, look, <laughs> looking good. Like, what if I am not accepted by that group I care about? What if my family and my friends no longer let me belong? What if I lose my, what if they reject me? And I'm just like, right? Like, Jesus is like, you want some bread? And I'm like hanging on to these things or safety and security like, what if I can't provide for the people I love? Like, what if we're not saving enough for retirement? Or what if, and I'm like hanging on to these things. Now, just imagine, Jesus is in his resurrected body. He's with these two people. They sit down at a table. He takes some bread. Just imagine, after all he's been through in the last week, that you're sitting with Jesus, and you just like put these things down. Fear, anxiety, like fear for my life and what my children's lives will become someday, looking good, fitting in, being rejected, safety, security, have we, have we stored up enough? What do you think Jesus is going to say at the table to these things? Like, is he just going to be like, you don't need to worry about that. That's never going to happen. Does Jesus look at these things that we white-knuckle around, and, and does he say, like, just trust me? I don't think so. No, I think Jesus is like, right, he, he's just been through betrayal, abandonment, misunderstanding, suffering, death. I think he's like, yeah, I've been human, and those things might happen. Can you die to that? Because if you can die to that, then you can live, truly live. And yeah, like, the worst you can possibly imagine, it might happen. That might happen. And the invitation seems to be like, can you die to that? Because if you can die to that, 
then you're unafraid, then you're fierce, then you're unstoppable, then you're living in resurrection life. Like, if you can somehow release your grip, the need for control on that. But my problem is often I am, I'm just so white-knuckling that. When Jesus broke bread with the disciples in this section of scripture, it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Can anybody think of another time in scripture where the phrase, their eyes were opened, is used? Genesis 3, which is so... Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve, when they took from the fruit that God told them not to take from, the scriptures say their eyes were opened. What were their eyes open to? Their eyes were open to, at that moment, sin and death and darkness and destruction entered the world, and their eyes were open to that. That's what the Bible says in Genesis 3. Well, now here, Luke is saying, when Jesus takes the bread and blesses the bread and breaks the bread and, and gives them this bread, their eyes are open. It's almost like Luke is saying, this resurrected body of Jesus is a reversal of Genesis 3. Their eyes were open there. Their eyes are open here. This is the great reversal that in Christ, the restoration of all that which is broken in creation has begun. And the path to participation in it is not the military Messiah that they had hoped, the invented Jesus that we often create, the path to participation in this renewal and restoration of all things, this, this eyes opening, this reverse of the curse, the path to participation in that is, can you die to those things so that you can live in this resurrection life? Can you die to these things? Can you die with me? to all of these false selves that you've created and that you live with. Their eyes are open in the breaking of the bread, and it's just, it's the power of the Eucharist. It's the sacrament of communion. It's in the bread, it's in the wine that we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. We take it in. We are nourished by it. We're, we're experiencing the, the real presence of Christ in a tangible way. So for you and I, like, if we are sad or mad or scared or afraid, we can imagine Jesus first coming and walking with us in that. And we can imagine Jesus being like, so tell me about that, being curious. So what? What's the story you're telling yourself about that? And then may we hear not only Jesus asking us into that self-awareness, but also telling us a, a different, better, truer, more beautiful story of God. Let's pray. I would invite you, as we close maybe, if it would be meaningful to you, to just take your hands, palms up, and um, make a fist. Imagine before God in prayer the things that maybe you are white-knuckling in life right now. 
Maybe it's the person who's wronged you and you just so badly want to be judge and jury over them, you want to make them pay. Can you die to that so that you can live? Or maybe it's your aging parents who aren't doing what you want or your children who aren't doing what you think is best. Can you die to that so that you can live? Maybe it's fear for the future, like, how am I going to provide for my family? What if I lose my job? Can I, can I trust God with that? Maybe it's just general anxiety about the future and the state of the world and the worries about, like, what will my life and my children's lives be? Can you die to that tight grip so that you can receive resurrection life? Jesus, you, you became human and experienced the worst life has to offer. And now in defeating death, you live totally unafraid. Perfect love casts out all fear and we so want to live more fully in your perfect love that would cast out all fear. God, right now we just open our tight grip. We release our fears as we come to the table. 